Hello, this is Jim, uh, back again. Uh, Feliz Pandemico, as they say in no place ever <laughs> thing. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to record some stuff for a podcast I started during the whole shelter-in-place quarantine situation for novel coronavirus. Uh, yeah, actually there's, I live in a building in a very dense urban area in San Francisco, and there actually is a Safeway in my building. I'm very lucky to have that. I don't have to go very far to get food. Um, it's a really interesting situation. Like they, they, they're only open till 10. It used to be midnight, but during the crisis they've shortened their hours um but we're in a a rough enough area that after eight o'clock at night they close their doors the the doors that are out facing the street that are easy to find they lock those down and they keep only one kind of side door that's tricky to find uh open and there's like, a, you know, a security guard, sometimes police officers stationed at the entrance to keep out the riffraff. Uh, it, so between 8 and 10 at night, you go down there, there's not a whole lot of people in there. People don't just wander in off the street. People, Most people show up and just assume that they're closed. Uh, so it, it's, it's really nice to have that. I, I walk down to the end of my hallway, go down an elevator, and it spills out into this little hallway where the entrance to the Safeway is. It's, it's, it's literally a five minute walk. I do not have to go anywhere. Uh, at this point, we're all still covering our faces. I do like, I don't have a mask, but I just cover myself in cloth somehow. I cover my mouth. And I've, I've, I find myself saying to the cashiers, you know, like, uh, thank you for your service. I totally mean it too. It's weird to be saying that to, uh, grocery store cashiers, but I, they, they are taking a massive risk. Just you should stand there all day. People are walking. Most people don't have their faces covered. My, the people I've seen don't have their faces covered. They're just walking around. Um, just exposing themselves to whatever. I, I, it's, yeah, that, that 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 takes some manner of guts. I I respect. I always say like thank you for being here. They they seem to appreciate that. I don't. I I think we should all be saying that to them right now. Uh, I I never would have guessed we would have gotten there. But anyway, I'm recording now. Again, um, I spent. I started recording voice memos to myself yesterday and I ended up doing that for maybe seven hours in total. Like as soon as I started doing that, I, I did nothing else. Um, I would stop and I'd be like, okay, I can watch TV or read or exercise or, or eat some food. I could do anything but this. I didn't want to do, I want to just wanted to get right back to recording more stuff, more talking. 
it was it's kind of like being in flow like it's a thing that i can just do and i i honestly so i have been reading carl jung recently i think this stuff is fascinating i won't talk about this much i could probably talk for a while about carl jung because he's a fascinating man but he talks about dream analysis and the last three therapists I've had have been like asking me about my dreams, including my current one. And I, I kind of thought when they asked this question, isn't that kind of outmoded? Is, is that still a thing? I, what, what aren't dreams just the brain firing random ideas that there is no real meaning in? I won't go into this, but I kind of, I, Carl Jung has more or less sold me on the idea that the, there's a part of our brain that we're not really aware of. It's just operating autonomously in the background, in some part of our, our brain that we don't have direct access to. And it does try to speak to us through dreams. It tries to speak to us through the art we might create, the stuff that we create creativity, creatively. Um, yeah, I think there actually is something to it. I'm sold on the idea. And I think it's more complicated than just people are cynical about it because people have dream books. It's like, okay, well, I dreamed of a giant crab trying to eat me. You look up crab in the dream book and you say, well, what does that what does it mean? It's associated with, was it Capricorn? I, I, I don't think it's quite that direct. I, I don't think it's, you look up what things were in the dream and there's this direct mapping to meaning. It's not like looking up the definition of a word in the dictionary. I think it's more complicated than that. I think there's, it tends to be more complex things happen in the dreams and you have to like, try and analyze them. I, I seriously think there is something to this and it is some part of us that's trying to speak to us and send us a message that we're supposed to, that we really ought to pay attention to. All this to say, I had a bunch of dreams last night, which I will not go into uh, at any length, but all of them had to do with me finding microphones. So there's one where I was on a Jurassic Park ride, you know, getting threatened by dinosaurs, and I end up in some house where I'm like looking. If I find some microphones, like nice looking ones you would use for podcasting, there was one where I was just lying in bed, something was going on. I look over at the bookshelf that's right next to my bed, and there's like you know three or four microphones that I own. I don't own any microphones, uh, but uh, it's kind of like, you know, pick one of these. You happen to own all these. Just grab one and, and you should record your podcast using one of these. There was another one where I was in college and I was sharing a dorm room with like Tina Fey, but it wasn't quite Tina Fey. It was like if you took a smaller version of Tina Fey, like if you reverse Captain America, Tina Fey, like that was my roommate. She wasn't famous yet. Anyway, even that ended with me finding microphones in the dorm room somewhere. So I, I think 
I could go on. It was all microphones. I think my, my brain is telling me, yeah, this whole, you just talk out loud to yourself thing. It's, it's something I did for eight, seven hours. I lost track of time, very much got in flow. And it seems therapeutic to me. I, I enjoy it. I remember my grandmother, um, my grandmother used to always do this. She used to talk to herself, you know, and it wasn't always just when she was alone. Um, I think it's when she thought she was alone. If she, if she felt she had enough space, she's in another room, there's no people around. You would hear her talking, like saying things, random things about like, oh, so-and-so thinks this, they're so wrong. Or, you know, I, I, oh, I don't, I'm not sure about that. Like a conversation with somebody and nobody. She did that for years. And I mean, it wasn't when she was, I mean, she obviously lost the grip on reality towards the end, but it was long before that. And I have always sort of talked to myself. I remember if I'm, if I'm in the car on a long car ride, I will speak ideas out loud. I, th I, I do think some part of me needs to do that. It's kind of like I, I read a book by Ken Robinson. Or if you've seen Ken Robinson's TED Talk on education, which is one of the more popular ones. I, I believe he talks about a girl who, very, very young girl in elementary school, who had trouble in class. She had trouble focusing on anything. She had trouble writing, drawing. She couldn't express herself. What ended up being was that she had to get up and move. She had to move her feet. And so she ended up being a very, I think she became a professional dancer. But she ended up having to move her feet. Like she had to get up and be in motion in order for her brain to activate and for the creativity to flow. That was how she expressed herself. Um, I think there's some compulsion on my part to do that. Like I feel the urge to talk through ideas to myself and I will do that in the privacy of my own home. And it really does help to just have a free form. I talk through things, uh, if it's about nothing in particular, but just letting ideas bubble up whatever they might be. I, I, I published this, I published a couple of episodes of this podcast on one of the major platforms, uh, anchor.fm. I was, I was creating it. I had to come up with a name and artwork and like a, you know, come up with a logo, kind of put it out there. Um, I settled temporarily on some, it's like a green bunch of bubbles. If you're listening to this on, on Spotify, you're probably looking at the logo or can see it. Uh, and I kind of like that. I like that, um, I don't know, uh, analogy for it. It's just like whatever bubbles up, whatever might come out of my brain in whatever way, kind of maybe I plan something, but it's just, it's largely whatever happens to emerge from my head. Uh, could probably use a better name and a better logo, but you know, it's a working, working title. Anyway. Yeah. So I'm back. 
talking more about yeah so what's been going on so coffee is the one vice that I have right now this is the one thing I will order uh, I order the coffee exactly the coffee that I want and caffeine is what I am making sure I treat myself to every morning uh, Michael Pollan has an audiobook that he just released. It's only available as an audiobook. I think it's maybe three or four hours long at most about caffeine. I haven't listened to this yet, but this, this sounds fast. Like anything Michael Pollan writes, I will definitely read. I've, I've started his How to Change Your Mind, which is uncharacteristically for him as a writer about psychedelics and their their uses um medicinally psychiatrically psychologically spiritually i i kind of wish i could say more about that but i don't know enough about it to articulate any kind of position and i guess this is I guess this is common. This is something Joe Rogan talks about a lot. I feel like this is, there's gotta be a lot of people starting podcasts right now saying they hope that they propel themselves into the, at the top of podcast fame. They want to become like Joe Rogan. That's not really what I'm, I would not, I, I blog in obscurity. I'm going to publish this in obscurity. I hope to remain largely in obscurity. Maybe a few random people find it. I think that gives you freedom once you, you have people, yeah, once you have people, enough people find you, yeah, I think you start getting criticism. And I, I, I don't handle that well. Uh, I don't, I like criticism, but not from random people on the internet who think that they're anonymous and people who will never meet you just feel like they can say whatever they want. It becomes at some point it becomes just awful and besides i'm always hyper attentive to like who is listening if a bunch of people started listening i get comments from strangers i would start feeling like okay now i have this pressure to do a good job not just let this go wherever it goes i, I kind of have fallen off on writing on my blog because i i feel like Every entry has to be very well composed now. Like, like, it, like the writing has to be progressing in quality in a way that I can assess. Every entry has to be structured. It has to have a definite beginning and end. Like they start and end in the same place, the same theme. Like an introductory and inclusive, conclusive paragraph and then three paragraphs in between. I don't quite follow that rigid of a format, but I feel like there's some level of quality I want to it was not the intent. The intent was just to freeform, put ideas out there, uh, not to have this pressure. So I, that's, I think, what I'm trying to do here. Get away from writing. Get into a format where you're, you can just verbally say things in a way that there, there's no pressure to do it with any particular structure, no particular level of quality. 
just let whatever whatever is in the the you know unconscious whatever it is just let that bubble up whatever form it's going to take you let it take i also have become conscious i've always thought of myself as being a pretty adept writer i don't think that is true um during quarantine i've actually started reading style guides I have, I have like a version of Strunk and White, which I think is the kind of the Hoyle manual of writing. I think that's the one everybody starts with. I have Steven Pinker's book, uh, The Sense of Style, and uh, Stephen King's sort of tome on writing. It's like half autobiographical and half, here are some things you should do in your writing so that it doesn't suck. Um, I've never really, I've always just kind of like read other people's writing. I absorb it. And then I, I kind of write like them. There's one book I wrote in college, and I think I, I without meaning to, tried to ad- adopt the more silly uh, kind of prose style of Kurt Vonnegut. So it was kind of like... Kurt Vonnegut is always saying, like, here is our world, but I'm going to write about it with kind of a perspective of how absurd it is. If you were like an alien coming to the planet and looking at it for the first time, this is what an outsider would see. Like, isn't it ridiculous that our national anthem of the United States is like peppered with question marks? What what, what questions are we asking? Like this, that sort of outside perspective, like try and give people um, look at something in a different light, you know, look at it, not necessarily critically, but in some silly way that, you know, really makes you, you could be critical of it. I think that's something, if I read a lot by one particular writer, I will, things that I write in the wake of that will tend to adopt that style. I'll just sort of absorb that that means of writing that's probably another thing too so i mean grammatically i am sorely in need of an editor anyone who follows me on twitter would know that i'm desperately in need of an editor i just say long things in very complicated ways uh, and it almost feels like I'm overcompensating for like, this is not an interesting idea, so I'm going to dress it up in very complicated language. Uh, it's probably something I'm, I do. I, I make, I, I state things more complicated than I need to because I don't have necessarily interesting or original ideas to offer. And I, I certainly don't have my own voice. I have not been writing consistently for long enough to have just developed, you'd look at it and say, well, you know, this is, this is Jim writing because of these elements, these sort of, I haven't created my own identity in writing yet. Probably the same thing is true with, uh, whatever I'm, however I'm speaking right now on this thing, I'm pretty sure I'm adopting the style of somebody else.
Or this is more meta, but I want to be, I don't want to spend this whole time talking about the creative process, the process of podcasting. I think that's the danger. Like people always complained about blogs, about blogging. In the early days, people would write, like, here's how you do a blog. There were so many blogs. It were just, here's how you create a blog. People were like studying how to do it and they didn't have anything else going through their heads. So when they went around to blog, they would inevitably talk about that. The danger here is that I could just go on at great length about podcasting. I think the challenge is that you have to seed it with more interesting ideas. Yeah, so I have been employed. I worked at a tech job in the Bay Area for three and a half years. I worked at one of those genetic testing companies where you can order a tube and spit into it, send it off and get it sequenced. Uh, it was a wonderful job, wonderful place, wonderful people I worked with. I, I, I do I do miss it. I left that job um, in February uh, in 2020, a couple months ago. I was planning on doing some volunteering around San Francisco and I did for about a week before um, quarantine happened. I actually started staying in for about a week before it became official, before San Francisco said, don't go out unless you have to. Because it was, watching the situation, I was kind of like, this is, this is probably going to get bad. I was like, if San Francisco, if the country doesn't shut itself down, it probably should. That would be a very, very big mistake. Now, I, I was actually kind of was wondering about this very, very early on. I'm certainly not saying this as a criticism of any politician or any, any anybody that's handled the crisis who's in authority. I, this is not a criticism, but it just this is this was my experience. I commute from San Francisco or used to commute on the Caltrain down to Sunnyvale. Maybe an hour and 10 minutes each way. So it was, you know, a couple hours on the train. And I remember being at work in late January. And I don't remember when, I don't remember what day it was. It was towards the end of the month. It was either Thursday or Friday. And the, I remember reading at work online about there is a case of this coronavirus that is killing people in Wuhan, China. And the first documented case has shown up in Santa Clara County. Somebody's been officially diagnosed with it. And uh, Sunnyvale is in Santa Clara. I worked in Santa Clara County. And on the train ride home that night, I was just, you're surrounded by people. You're in very close quarters with lots of people. It's rush hour. I'm like grabbing onto like the handles as I'm standing up as the train's going. And I'm looking at all these people that are just standing around me as like we're getting to the, we're arriving at the final stop. Everyone's standing up and kind of crowding around ready to just pour out of the doors. And I was like, this is, this is, I'm surprised this is not, we should be worried about this. 
Like this is this is a virus. This is something that will kill people, and it, it's now confirmed in this area of the country. And this person who was diagnosed with it in Santa Clara County, he could have come into contact with any number of people, and any one of them could be on this train with me right now, and not not necessarily showing symptoms yet. I don't think it was known that it was a latent virus, but people have it for some amount of time before they start showing symptoms, even with the regular flu, even if it isn't up to two weeks. And I was like, this this is really not a good situation. I'm not comfortable with this. I was like, should I start? I do have a car, which I never, I don't know why I own a car, but I was thinking maybe should I start driving to work? I had a lot of my coworkers also commuting from San Francisco. We all we all took the train. I was like, well, maybe I should start just offering to carpool. Like, let's all avoid public transit. Anyway, I definitely got very worried very early on that this was going to become a whole ordeal. Um. Yeah. Uh, disease is something I take very, very seriously. I think there aren't many things that worry me, like genuinely concern me. And, and certainly none of these things keep me up at night, but there's a very short list. I think radical shifts in the climate that might potentially destabilize the food supply. That has happened many times throughout history. It will it will happen again. It, it's it seems like it may be in the process of happening at some places around the world because uh, that will destabilize social order. Uh, pandemics like this one, viruses, things just get out of control. People dying in mass. Um, antibiotics, the fact that we abuse those. I've heard people say that those are kind of on loan from nature. We're already seeing like a, a reduction in effectiveness. Like the the, the bacteria, the organisms that these uh, antibiotics are meant to fight are already evolving resistance to them. And people do die from these. I think we, at some time in my lifetime, I don't know when, we will get to a point where if you get a cut and some, like the wrong kind of bacteria gets in there, it may be that you're just done. That's really a scary thought, but that's, and I think, I think political instability. I, 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 I do worry about this. Apparently in, in my home state of Michigan, there are people standing up and protesting the kind of draconian authoritarian nature of this shelter in place. They, they seem to think it is the, the government telling them what to do. And they, they don't like that. It's a kind of a libertarian stance. Like, you know, what gives you the right to tell me to stay home? Yeah. Of course, these arguments come up. The first amendment, freedom of assembly, it's like, oh, well, they're suppressing our constitutional rights. 
Yeah. Yeah, they are. I, 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 but for some reason, of course, it's necessary. What, what I don't like is people are protesting in Michigan, saying this is, this is unjust. We're being oppressed. For some reason, Trump is openly telling people, yeah, way to go. Let's see. He, he tweeted something yesterday, just in all caps, two words, liberate Michigan. And liberate Minnesota. And one other state. Basically, wherever the protests were happening, it seems like he was encouraging them. Like, yeah. Like, stick it to the man. And I, this is, this comes on like less than 24 hours after, uh, the official advice from the federal government from the administration to the states is that one, the states have autonomy over the decision as, as to when to reopen the country. Uh, and then he says, basically like Trump comes out and stokes the fire and says, well, you guys should all be protesting and demanding that the country reopen. Very difficult to know exactly what the strategy is here. Like, let it be known that the federal government is not responsible for any of this. It's somebody else's decision. Okay. And then turn the children against that authority. I guess that kind of makes sense. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's delegating, I guess. It's, it's like saying, hey... It's like in that, that television show, Silicon Valley. There's, there's a massive project. It's millions of dollars invested and it is not going well. The CEO of the, the company that is doing it just kind of last minute brings in somebody else to head up the project. He's like, yeah, this is, this is going to be you. There's been all kinds of press about it. It's a, it's a very high profile project says like yeah this is you're going to get all the credit for this this thing we've been working on and, and of course the person comes in sees what it is and flees immediately when he sees just how terrible the project has uh, just how poorly it, it's gone off the rails i guess that's what it is like let, let's let's make somebody else responsible for all of this And then just make it a conflict right away. I don't really. Ah. Uh, yeah. Okay, we got into politics. Although there isn't a whole lot else to really talk about that's current. Outside of what's going on in the political landscape. It seems like that is everybody's. They're all kind of just watching the news. This is, this is really not a good time. The thing is, I, politically, I sort of punted on the question of, I'm going to figure out my political values. I'm going to punt on figuring out how to track what's going on in the country. 
via news channels. When I was in my 20s, when I was much younger, I said, I need to focus on other things. I want to focus on building a life for myself. I want to focus on kind of figuring out more who I am, build a career, get stable. And then at some point I'll develop a natural interest in it. I always develop an interest in anything at some point. It's just inevitable. Or the situation in the country politically will get so bad. Like we'll elect somebody who's probably the wrong choice for office. Um, somebody who I don't trust to make the right decisions. And I was like, if that ever happens, then I will, I will take extra steps to start tracking what's going on. And I kind of felt that way with Trump. Uh, and it's not because I'm a liberal. Uh, I consider myself centrist. I have sympathies to both sides. Um, I remember people saying that they didn't like George Bush, George W. Bush, the second Bush, because he was, you know, Hitler. It seems to be what everybody says about every conservative president. He's, he's Hitler. And of course, Obama gets elected right after him and he is Stalin. But these are the two political anchor points we have, you know, the, uh, any left president, any president on the left side is going to be accused of being some sort of Stalinist, a socialist. And any president on the right is going to be tarnished as being Hitler, some sort of fascist. I guess the model, the model works. I mean, it's not, it's drastically oversimplified, but I guess those parallels, I'm not saying they're right. I certainly don't think George W. Bush was Hitler at all. I never thought that. I don't know how people ever got that into their heads. And I certainly don't think Obama was anywhere near Stalin. They're, they're, they're extreme examples of what the two parties represent. And they're extremely negative, extreme uh, archetypes, I guess, of the other side. Yeah, very uncreative, very lazy way of demonizing whoever's in charge. Anyway, so all this to say, I, it's not as though I dislike Trump. Not that I was worried about Trump because of what, because of his political ideology. I, I more or less expected him to come in as a conservative person and, and start cutting government. You, you push for less. Uh, you push for tax breaks for, well, I mentioned it's always going to be the, uh, the more wealthy that get the tax breaks. But trying to curb spending on social programs. Um, but Trump concerned me for another reason. Like it just, the the way he treated journalists early on was very concerning. The way he seemed to have no 
respect for the process. The fact that he, very early on I saw a news clip of somebody asking him like, can you please tell me about this or that issue? Like, what's your stance on it? And Trump was said something like, you can figure that out. And the reporter was like, well, I don't want to figure it out. I mean, I'm fake news. I forget who the, if he was with CNN. And I mean, Trump essentially just said, okay, I'm done with you. He walks away, goes and sits down at his desk and kind of shuffles papers. Incredibly disrespectful. Um, and I, I see that now with him, people ask questions and he, if they're at all, there's at all any veiled criticism that they say, Hey, people are not approving. People disapprove of this aspect of how you're handling this. What would you say to them? He dismisses it as a nasty question and deflects. Um, I think that that is what concerns me. I think if, you, if you're going to be in charge, and of course not everybody's going to like you, but I, I think you have to be a kind of person who's okay not being liked and not focus on all of that. I think as soon as you are pathologically attuned to having everyone like you, I think whatever the situation is, if you're president, if you're running a company, if you're trying to be the head of a household, if you're concerned that the kids are going to like you, you're not going to, you're going to have to make decisions that make you unpopular. And you have to come from a place of not, you have to come from, come from a place of values. You have to come from a foundation of I'm doing this and I know this is right for my children or for the household because you just have to have that solid core. I don't sense that in, I've never had that sense that that is coming from the Trump, Trump administration or Trump himself. Uh, it just, I've said this before, but it seems like he is very much defining himself, you know, by the, by his opposite. If I'm talking to somebody and then they say that they're Republican or Democrat, that's, that's great. I, I don't have a problem with anyone being either thing or holding any particular position. Tell me why you think that. But I, I mean, my father was conservative. He doesn't talk politics now, but he was very, I remember asking him, for example, why, why did you, um, you know, vote for Trump? And I said, well, I, I, I didn't want Hillary. Hillary was terrible. He starts going off on Hillary. I was like, okay, well, that's not why you, you're telling me why you did not vote for Hillary. You're not telling me why you voted for Trump. When the question of climate change came up, and I, I would try to have this conversation with him at great length. It was, so tell me why it is you don't believe in climate. Like, first of all, what is your position? Is it that you, is it that you do not believe climate change is happening? Do you believe that it is happening, but the causes are natural? 
do you believe that human beings are causing it, but the current solutions to it are, would be ineffective or economically unfeasible? It doesn't really seem to be a solid. If you talk to somebody who calls themselves a climate change denier, there's not a singular position that they, they, they seem to take. Um, I, I tried to nail my father down on that. I said, like, tell me, you know, tell me what is it your position? And the only thing he could say was that people who believed in climate change were wrong, that there was some sort of conspiracy to, I can never quite get the answer like what the conspiracy was and what it was designed to do. He just knew that the idea that climate change was something we need to worry about or talk about. He didn't like it. And I, I, I had a friend in Santa Barbara who was definitely on the other side of the spectrum. He was, he was politically very liberal. And I could sometimes get it out of him what it is he actually thought. What is it you actually believe? But, but, you know, most of the conversation was about how full of crap Republicans were. You know, um, this is what I don't. I don't like it when somebody says, I am not a. Now, you could say you have A and B on opposite sides. You can call yourself B, but tell me why you are B. Do not just say I'm not A because people who are A are completely wrong. Don't, don't define yourself as a negative. And I feel like that kind of, that is that is the Trump administration and Trump himself seems so very focused on yeah like it's I'm right because I stand in opposition to the left and the left is just wrong I don't have to back that position completely but I, I can make a very weak case that the Democrats are wrong I'm not a Democrat therefore I must be right it's a, it's a false dichotomy it's an error of of logic and that that seems to be that there's no real sense of values that he's operating from it seems like if if there if he does express a value position it's it's kind of shoehorning it in after the fact you kind of decide i'm against the left's position okay the right position would be roughly this so i'll state that Yeah, that I, I, I think I, I don't know what we do now. I don't have the answers. I'm simply saying here's here's my position. Here's why it concerns me. And it has nothing to do with partisan politics. It's more my concern that there is a minimum threshold of a certain kind of character a minimum threshold of quality of character you would expect from a political leader. And I've never felt that from Trump.
I, I wasn't exactly planning to sit here and talk about politics for this long, but it's worth, I guess, talking through. I'll just keep on this topic. Yeah, so the decisions he's made, like I said, I'm centrist. So there are, there are elements of conservative ideology that I agree with. And there are elements of liberal ideology that I also agree with. And I, I, I don't know if I guess if I sat down and did a tally, like, where do I come on either side? Like, where do I fall? What's my opinion about this issue? What's my opinion about that issue? If you drew the line and just counted, you, I probably would fall on one side or the other more heavily. I would guess it would be the left. But I certainly don't apply that label to myself. I, I don't call myself a Republican or a Democrat. For the same reason, I don't apply like religious labels to myself. It's because I like to confront things. If, if there's a question before me, what do you think about X issue? The danger in taking on a label, and this is a danger I would very much succumb to, I have had this issue in the past, is that if you are a Democrat, for example, somebody asks you about issue X, the first question you might ask is, well, what does my party think about that issue? It, it immediately puts this pressure on you to kind of be consistent with whatever tribe you are in. So let me figure out what my people think about that. And I'll let that inform my decision. I think that is very backwards. I think you should consider an issue independent of where you stand on the political spectrum, where you think you might stand, and reach your conclusion based on something else, not based on how you self-identify, but the deeper values you hold. I think you should start with values and kind of apply those to each issue independently and maybe you end up deciding based on that I'm left or right. I think it's dangerous to go the other way and say, well, I'm going to identify with a political party which will determine my stance on things and my values will proceed from that. If we have a problem in this country, I, I don't think it's altogether new, but political division has always been based on that, I think. It's always based on people wanting to identify with a party. And that drives their opinions about things. It basically makes you shoehorned into a category and it, as you go forward with that mentality, you'll get more and more shoehorned on one side or the other. Yeah, this, this, I think this is where political polarization comes from. So, yeah, I lost track of where I was going with this. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I don't know what to do. I, th I don't know what we should do 
right now, given the current situation. I don't have an answer. I'm talking through my position, and I think it, it, ultimately it comes down to each one of us to try and figure things out for ourselves. I would give that advice to anyone who's young and coming up in the world. And be very, very careful about applying labels to yourself. Be very, very careful about how those labels make you behave, how they make you regard the world, how they cause other people to look at you. Be aware of what, how other people will look at you based on those labels. And yet paradoxically, you do have to adopt some kind of label. Um, I've always been something of a wallflower. I'm, I'm, I'm generally kind of skittish about engaging socially. And human beings are, human beings have this funny mechanism in your brain. Like if you come across something and it's not in a category, then it's invisible. So if you are the kind of individual that just defies easy categorization, you become sort of forgettable. People don't know where to peg you. So there's no anchor for them to, where, the, where they can place you in their, in their heads. And I've always been somebody who tries to uh, not be easily, easily categorizable. If I get the sense that people are, well, so I always, I'm, I'm kind of aware of how people might perceive me. So I remember being in my undergrad day when I was in college, uh, my earlier years, I was studying, was there, I was in normal classes, normal undergrad classes that everyone had to take as part of the core curriculum for any career. And I used to like dress up, I used to wear like nice clothes, because uh, that's not what most people were doing. I wanted to try and differentiate myself. And in, in my later couple of years, I had to focus on my core curriculum, like stuff related to my major, which was a business degree. And at that point, I stopped dressing so nicely. I started just dressing very sloppily. In jeans and a t-shirt. So it's, it's like you, you kind of imagine what is the stereotype here? What are most people doing? If I say, hey, I'm a business major, what, what kind of expectation does that put in someone's mind? Okay, I'm going to dress against the expectation. It's like at any point in my life, like during high school, if I had established a reputation as being X kind of person, I would switch around and immediately start dressing against whatever that perceived reputation was. Just because people are trying to get a grip on you, but you're oiled up and they can't quite get a hold. You just slip through their fingers and you go somewhere else. It's a very good way of not being remembered Actually, I, I talked to a friend from high school a few years after we had, like, in the middle of college. 
and I would, I forget how this came up, but he, he mentioned like, oh yeah, Jim, when you were in high school, you stuck out like a sore thumb. You were always all over the place. Like there's probably nobody that went to high school that would not remember you. You, you were just always distinct. I'm not sure that that carries over into the adult world. I think people, as I've gotten older, people are trying to peg you down based on who you are, your values. I think people need the categories. They need, they need you to fit into one hole or another. They need you to, they need to be able to peg you or else they will forget you. If you are not categorizable, you are not memorable. And I don't think, I, I, I don't think people really, I'm not memorable. I don't leave jobs and take a lot of friendships from those companies with me. Um, I think it's because of that. So I, I do that politically. Like, I, I, like the, let's not get bogged down with labels. And it, it's not as though I don't have values. I do. I, I just don't want... I guess in the past I've confused labels with values. I don't like labels, so I don't define myself in terms of labels. But I'm very, very bad at articulating what my values are. It would probably behoove me to like sit down and figure out what those are and learn how to talk about them in a way that is relatable. I could probably talk about this more. Like, pick a, pick a subject and say, here's where I stand. Yeah, but I don't know much about this thing that people talk about called identity politics. I have a feeling that's the subject I've been kind of sort of flirting with for the last 10 minutes or so, just verbally talking it through. I think that's a concern. I think if you, if you look at a person, if you look at like a person's online profile on a social network and they say, well, basically going through the, the categories and saying, yes, I'm a, an agnostic. I am a Republican. I am whatever. Go through all the boxes. If you look at that and you immediately think you know the person, you probably know something about the person. You, you at least know enough to kind of put them in a particular space. It does narrow the scope of them as a person. But you don't know exactly who they are. You can't assume you know who they are based on only that. I think, mo I think that that's very common now. And I think that is, I think that is a massive problem. Yeah, so I, identity should not come from labels. I don't think values should come from labels. And I think that if you're going to peg someone down, it should be based on values. You, their identity should come from what they fundamentally believe, which should not be driven by labels.
Okay. I think I'm going to wrap this up because I don't think this is. Yeah, when it comes to politics, I have made an effort to kind of get more informed. I, I went back to the beginning. I started reading. I dabbled in Plato's Republic. Nothing you can learn from that that is at all useful. Uh, I find the writings of Thomas Paine to be the most interesting. I I love Thomas Jefferson. Um, I think I identify with that man. He was brilliant. I am certainly not. But he was the rare kind of individual who was both a, he was both a philosopher and a politician. And by that I mean he was a man of, of profound thought. And he was a man of action. Um, I am much more in the first category. I'm much more a thinker. What I've so far failed to learn how to do is to take action based on the thought. So I, I respect that he was an individual that knew how to apply his knowledge about the world. And he certainly had deeper knowledge about philosophical topics than I do. Unfortunately, Thomas Jefferson didn't leave a whole lot behind. Like he never sat down and he wrote the Declaration of Independence. That's, I think, the most what most people have in terms of like his political philosophy. And he did write letters to people. Um, he also wrote uh, notes on the state of Virginia, I believe, which are I, I I haven't read those. I don't know how much benefit anyone would get. From reading those but but essentially he never sat down and wrote down okay here's my political philosophy he never elaborated on the Declaration of Independence he never sat down and said here is what I'm thinking here are my thoughts on politics at great length in a singular work that we can reference now we do have Thomas Paine's writings. He, he wrote Rights of Man. If Thomas Jefferson had ever sat down to write a singular work that encapsulates his political thinking, I would guess it would look something like that. So that's something to turn to. Uh, Thomas Paine is, of course, not credited as an, an official founder of the country. His face is not on money. Uh, I think it ought to be. Yeah. But trying to go back and figure out where we started in all this. And I have mentioned this before, but one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Paine, which I can't quote word for word, but he says something to the effect of, you know, the government is made for the living and not the dead. And so basically, the point there is that the government should serve the current people. He was making an argument against 
the colonies at the time, and even the, the current churches, or sorry, the current government in England, the parliament that was there, the, the basically the, the structure of government, the, the monarchy, whatever was in place, had been put in place a century and a half prior. And Payne was like, well, this is this was put in place a long time ago. It was done for the benefit of people living in that time. And really, all those people are dead now. Why should we be beholden to a governmental structure set up by them? Really, it should be done by the people who are, it should meet current needs. It should address current problems. And so I think there is kind of this question you do here, like, it seems like whenever people are talking about politics, they, they seem to go back to the founders. Like, what did the founders think? I think this is probably an important question, but only to a degree. I don't think if you could, like, somehow resurrect Thomas Jefferson, you ask him a question about this or that. Um, but that, that should be your answer. Assuming Thomas Jefferson comes back with the knowledge of politics from his day. We occupy a very, very different world. I, the Second Amendment is probably a very, very good example here. I, I honestly don't know much about this. Uh, it's kind of a hot button issue. But people say, like, you know, the, the Second Amendment says very, very clearly um, people should be allowed to own guns. And there are people who say, well, that's that's no longer relevant. It was saying a militia to defend against the tyranny of England. That's what that's there for. And that's no longer applicable. So we don't we don't need that. And there are, of course, people who argue the contrary, like we, we very much need to have an armed populace because it's not as though we're immune to threats from outsiders or, you know, invasions from foreign enemies. It just, it hasn't happened in recent memory. Just like there hasn't been a, a pandemic like the one we're going through since about a hundred years ago. Um, we've kind of forgotten this. Uh, there hasn't really been an on-soil war. Uh, so that's, I think, 1812. I think there have been little bursts of conflict since then, but nothing, nothing anything like we might imagine, like nothing like the movie Red Dawn. So just, we've, we've gotten complacent, but let's not, Imagine that we're above what could happen. We're not above the, the forces of history. And of course, there are people who say that like it may be the tyranny of our own government that takes over. And we have to like be armed to, so we can do as the constitution says to overturn the current government and institute a new one very radical position. 
I'm I'm not sure I think that makes any sense. If it, if it comes down to, okay, the government's really, really bad and we need to get rid of it, I, I'm not sure a violent overthrow in military fashion is, I'm not sure it's even an option. But even if it were, I'm not sure that's a, the best way of doing it. That certainly would be a last resort. I just try to imagine, a, a, what are people actually thinking? Like everyone in the government is so corrupt and it goes down to the police officers working in your local city. Like somehow they are with the federal government against all of the citizens. And the citizens are rising up against the local police. So the citizens are armed. They have guns. The police have guns. And they're squaring off with each other. Like, like urban guerrilla warfare. That's madness. There's certainly, there's no way I would say we should be armed because of that kind of contingency. I don't see it ever getting to that point. And if it it really came down to most of the population of the country against the federal government, uh, I, I I would hazard a guess that the federal government is probably, probably has us outgunned at this point. I think the spirit of what the Constitution probably means is that we, we we would ideologically replace them. You know, I'm not talking about impeaching the president, but I'm, I'm saying if the structure of government really stops serving the people completely, um, we would replace replace the people in power, or come up with a new structure that we we might think is less prone to falling apart, that's prone to corruption. Anyway, Second Amendment. This is, this is one thing that I, I don't know enough about to really say. I could just verbally meander for a while. But I mean, even if you if you brought Thomas Jefferson back or any of the founders back, I mean, they would have to take stock of where we're at. They would have to like learn how weapons have like progressed who's armed with what what's the potential firepower they'd have to get up to speed on anything and they then they then make an assessment basically any even the worst political pundits talking heads on tv the political commentators they are better informed about what's going on today than any of the founders would be so there is an underlying spirit to what the founders wrote. There, there is a core to their ideas. The stuff that Jefferson, I'm sure, got from John Locke about political philosophy. Montesquieu. Uh, there's probably like an underlying uh, kernel of truth. That I think when people say we need to pay attention to the founders, it would be Pay attention to that, the spirit and not the letter. What is it they said? I I think people go off track very quickly when they start trying to apply specifics. Like we can extrapolate when a political figure from history uh, 
made some general comment that seems to apply to a current situation, and therefore they would have concluded this, and somehow we're beholden to that. It's amazing how little we, we, we know about why the decisions were made. I briefly read a case look, a book of case law about the First Amendment. Um, uh, and it, it's, the author started off by saying, it was a law professor who had written the book very, very readable book, even if you're not a legal scholar or in law school. But he starts off by saying that, you know, the language of the First Amendment is extremely simple. But it doesn't clarify the nuances of the position. It doesn't clarify why the, uh, the people who wrote the language were making these decisions. And in terms of the historical context in which it was written, we don't even know very much about that. The problem with the Second Amendment, too. like A well-regulated militia, people should be armed. We don't have a whole lot of context for that. There's a lot of speculation about what the context was. You can conjecture. And same thing with the First Amendment. You know, why would these six clauses have been created in their time and place, and to what extent are they applicable to our uh, to our own time? It's almost impossible to, to say for sure. I mean, essentially, it's, it's interpreted by judiciary, the judiciary branch, like judges. It's judicial review. Marbury v. Madison. They're the ones who have the final say in interpreting the law. Yeah, actually, when it comes to politics, this is the first thing I, it, it, the antidote to partisan political thinking, to any kind of fanaticism on either side is I think to, to study the law. The reason I read a case, a case law book about the First Amendment is that this was very briefly a contentious issue. People talked at great length about, oh, this is a free speech issue. Basically, like people were saying, we want to. This is the crazy thing. To me, there were actually protests of students at UC Berkeley, of all places, which is the birth of the free speech movement like 50, 60 years ago. There were people marching, trying to keep certain speakers from coming to the campus and talking. I, I, I don't know why this regression happens. I, I don't think I have to point out the irony of people are using free speech to try and shut down someone else's free speech. But this was, this was, there were, there were some conservative speakers that UC Berkeley did not want to come speak because they were uh, 
very right-leaning or reputed to be. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the biologist who generally is a militant atheist, I think he's the original one that coined militant atheist. Uh, we should be proselytizing atheists. Speak up. Uh, I think he was kept from speaking at UC Berkeley because of his his critical position on religion included a critical position on Islam. And the left tends to view any criticism of Islam as being something that is akin to racism. It's discriminatory speech. Even if you're talking about the ideology of the religion itself and not the members, the adherents to the religion. Um, there was also the case of the Canadian psychology professor, Jordan Peterson, who came to prominence about four years ago for posting some YouTube videos that were talking about basically legislating how legislating speech about pronouns around non-binary gendered people. It's, it's, it came down to there, there's all these ideas floating around that people don't like. They were happening in the context of it seems like if Trump gets elected, things seem to be going more and more conservative. You know, there's this alt-right that kind of gained new prominence when Trump got elected. And, and so it's, it's kind of like, well, these are, these are very dangerous ideas that we do not want promulgated. Uh, the alt-right, not the, not the general amorphous, ill-defined uh, group of people that, you know, they have, you've, you've heard people mention in the news, but the alt-right, the actual alt-right, which is created by a gentleman named Richard Spencer, uh, he coined the term, and he himself is a neo-Nazi. Essentially, instead of calling themselves the neo-Nazis um, or the white nationalists, uh, he, he coined the term alt-right. Like we are a an extreme conservative group on the right side of the political spectrum. Uh, of, of course, the things that he says uh, are very, very dangerous ideas that you do not want to be flirting with. And it is an interesting question to what extent you should not let a person like this speak. I personally don't think There's the notion of, of prior restraint. You again, not a lawyer, not a legal scholar, but, but the idea that you you can't prevent someone from speaking simply based on the content of what it is they are going to say. I think that's generally true. I think I think that's very very true, and this is the way that it's been interpreted. Like whatever it is you're talking about. If somebody is speaking, 
and it is firing up the audience. If it's, if it's something that is designed to generate hate for another group or set of individuals, it cannot be censored. Essentially, it has to, it has to seem to law enforcement that there, there seems to be a real threat of immediate violence. There is no other way of quelling the violence. There's no other op means to do so. Uh, a couple other restraints, forget what this is, but essentially only if you meet those criteria or criteria, um, then you can you can say to the speaker you have to you have to shut up. I I don't know if those are sufficient. If you go back to the United States during World War II, uh, like prior to us entering the war, th there was there was most certainly an element of Nazi rhetoric floating around the United States. The most extreme and well-known example of this is, I think, Charles Lindbergh, who got up and said some things that were very blatantly anti-Semitic in the late 30s. I think he was making a run for political office. Anyway, subversion is a, it was a very real problem. Hitler did have connections to people in the United States, and there were groups forming that were designed to advance Nazi ideology, if nothing else, to, to undermine uh, anti-Nazi ideologies here, kind of ideological warfare. I, I, I wonder if we were doing that to them. That's a question I've never asked. If the, if the United States had people, agents of democracy, and you know, um, against fascism. Like if we had people over in Germany who were trying to start those organizations. Anyway, it certainly was happening here. Uh, and it, it did gain critical mass in a few cities. Now it's, it's not as though that presents an immediate threat of violence at a singular event. And I, I think by the time, if, if you have something that sort of, it's more about ideas, you spread anti-Semitism as a philosophy that people just believe. At what point are you responsible for shutting such a thing down? It, it can't be when there's an immediate threat of violence because the threat of violence is not immediate. It would have to reach Eventually, you just have so many people who've come to believe this that it ends up becoming violence that manifests itself politically. I, I guess that's when that's when it becomes problematic. As soon as you have some, I guess you, it would get to the point where it's not just some group of people meeting under the cover of darkness in secret and talking about anti-Semitic ideas or. It happens openly. There's no backlash from the population against it. And at some point it gets high enough so that some local government is actually backing these ideas. Some politician, some mayor gets elected who 
backs anti-Semitic Nazi ideology, white nationalism. And I, I guess at that point you have to hope that the federal government or state government, some outside party would step in and stop that from going any further. So yeah, I kind of wandered off the path here, but back to politics. Yeah, the antidote to adopting any fanatical extreme position is to take the issue you're looking at. In this case, it's it, it's free speech. I, you can't rely on any popular journalistic account of what that is, or what that means, what it should mean, how it has been interpreted to have meaning. You, you can't learn that from a simple article. If you, if you really want to get to the heart of anything that a politician or a, or a political talking head, a pundit is saying, the first thing you have to do is look at what the law is around that issue. Because what, I, what I've found in every single case and the First Amendment is a perfect example of that. Once you get into the law, once you start talking to lawyers who know the law around the issue at bar, it's never as black and white as any partisan politician would have you believe. Not even close. It's just, it's a massive gray area you, you can't adopt one stance and say, okay, well, this is, that means this position is right and this position is wrong. It's always more fuzzy than that. I was listening to a law professor talk recently about the impeachment process in this country, what, what it entails. And of course, he's not taking a stance either way. People asked him, People in the audience during the Q&A are, of course, asking him leading questions like, don't you think Trump is terrible? And he's like, I, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about I just, I'm here to talk about the law. I'm a law guy. Which is whenever I hear a lawyer speak about some highly political issue, that is always the track they take. They always say that this, I'm focusing on what I know and I'm leaving opinion out of it. You should, if you've been listening to this whole thing, you should know, of course, that I love that. But somebody, he mentioned in this speech of his, somehow it, it was related, but the notion of corporations being people. Corporations being able to lobby Congress as though they were single entities. This is problematic. I'm not going to say that it's not. But interestingly enough, he pointed out that the exact same law that allows this to happen allows unions to lobby Congress as singular entities. So if you take away the right of, of corporations to lobby Congress, that would apply to unions as well. So it, again, I, it doesn't mean that there is a 
a clear answer here. That's, that's exactly the point. There isn't a clear answer. It's almost impossible to quickly apply a solution to something without having unintended consequences because you, you didn't understand deeply enough just how far what you are messing with goes. I, I, I think I heard a, a very good, I heard of a very good expression. I think it's called, I want to say it's called Chekhov's fence. But the idea is that you're out walking and you come across a fence which is in your way. And you should be very, very careful not to simply take the fence down and and throw it away because you don't know. You may not know why the fence is there. It may serve a purpose that is unclear to you. And it is not simply your right to say, this is inconvenient to me, therefore I am throwing it away completely. And I think this, this applies to political issues. If people, I, I wouldn't even say that it's a fence you can see. I would think that it's more like an iceberg or I can't think of a better example. Essentially you could, you might, you come across something, but most of the ramifications of what you might do, uh, trying to get rid of the iceberg, trying to get rid of the fence, you wouldn't know what's going to happen. The political changes are essentially a, a kind of a chaotic system. They're complex enough that anything you do is going to have emergent properties like unintended effects, things you didn't see happening. It's like when we try to go into national parks and manage the local wildlife. So it's very, very clear there are, there are too many of these deer. Let's call them. You call them and then that affects the balance of what they were preying on or what was preying on them. Because there's ripple effects in two directions along the food chain. We never quite can predict exactly what those are going to be. There's, there's the butterfly effect in managing ecosystems. And there is a butterfly effect in managing political systems where people don't see it that way. They, they see it as a seesaw that just will simply go up and down. And it, it, you believe you can see more of what will happen than you actually can. It would be very, very interesting to be a lawyer. I would like to have legal training and like basically have gone to law school and taken the bar to have that knowledge and to be able to think like that, to be able to argue like that, to apply logic the way you have to learn on the LSATs. There's no way I would want to be a lawyer. There are so many things I would like to get educated on to have degrees in, but I, I wouldn't want to, live the life that comes after the academic training.
kind of feel like that's always been true of me. Like I, I, I'm, I'm interested in learning anything, almost anything. I would, I would devote a long time to learning if I were interested in it. And I'm interested in many things. But yeah, it's two different things. This is what they don't tell you when you go into college. You have to pick a major, but you should seriously consider what kind of lifestyle that choice of major will lead to. I don't think I thought that through when I picked the, the business degree. I, I studied accounting. I don't think I was thinking, I had no way of knowing exactly what that meant. I think if, I, if somebody had actually taken me to an office and said, here's what accountants are doing, I would, I would be like, yeah, the whole deal's off. I'm going, I'm going to do something else. I was originally thinking about sociology my first semester. And I remember running into a sociology major who was, it was her last semester. She was graduating. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to go to Africa, try and help poor people, but I don't know how the hell I'm going to do that because I'm going to be a poor person myself. And I was like, okay. I, I was at least aware of the financial reality. I think that's why I picked the major that I did. Because I was like, yeah, you, you, nobody's going to give you anything. You have to earn it all for yourself. You have to, you have to prove that you are worth paying or some sort of skill. And I was like, I don't think I'm creative enough to get a sociology degree, sociology degree, something just general, and, and figure out how to work, work out a, a good life around that. And so yeah, I was like, I had better get something that's more of a trade. I think that's why I ended up going to business. I at least thought it through. I want to have a steady paycheck coming in as an adult. But I, I don't think I really thought through like, okay, let's say you go the accounting route. What does is, what is your life look like if you do that? But it's the same thing. I consider going back to get a graduate degree. Uh, Law school would certainly be interesting, but the lifestyle beyond that, I don't think I could handle. Anyway, yes, law is interesting. If you find yourself emotionally overwhelmed by the political situation, you just if you cannot think about it with a cool head and it's driving you up the wall, start studying the law around whatever is bothering you. Look into the history. How did we get here? It's, it's almost impossible to remain emotional once you start taking on that knowledge. Yeah, so this one ended up going in a much more political direction. Uh, I'm going to think I've been rambling about this for long enough, so I'm going to cut this off and say that yeah. Thank you for listening, wherever you are. I hope you and yours are healthy in the middle of this whole pandemic situation. I hope you continue to be. Um, yeah. Take care of yourselves. 
be well out there. This is Jim signing off. Cheers.